welcome to the Real Estate Raw Show, hosted by Joe Mendoza. So you're wondering about land investing. You maybe even ran into Seth Williams on one of his videos on RE Tipster. Well, today, ladies and gentlemen, we have the man, the myth, the legend himself on our show. We're going to be talking about the ins and outs of investing in land, some of the pros, some of the cons, some of the different things you should be looking out for. He's a proven success story who stuck it out. Now, there's no one to say that real estate investing or investing in land is easy. So it's one of these things that you got to stick to it. You got to learn before you earn. You got to watch these videos. I strongly, strongly encourage you to hit that subscribe button, follow our show, follow Seth's show. You're going to learn tremendous amount of information. And he is so genuine, so real. Let's enjoy the show. Hi, guys. Joe Mendoza here in sunny San Diego. Welcome to my show. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm super, super excited. A major pro, a star on YouTube. He does a ton of great videos himself. I've asked him to come on the show. We are so honored and privileged. Seth Williams, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. All right, sir. Love to love to know, Seth Williams, before real estate, could you introduce to our listeners who Seth Williams is? Yeah. I'm sorry, you asking like what I did before real estate? Was that the question? Correct. Or? Correct. Yeah. Yep. So before real estate, um, what's well, kind of interesting, my, my real estate investing career in my like old nine to five job definitely overlapped. I did the two at the same time for several years, but um, prior to real estate, like when I was just getting into it, I was working in uh, commercial banking, like in the real estate sector. So I worked for a company that uh, administered SBA 504 loans, kind of a strange sounding niche uh, commercial loan product. But um, yeah, that was, that was my life. I did SBA loans and it was, I learned a lot and there was a lot of stuff I learned from that career that crossed over into real estate. So that was definitely helpful, but it also wasn't like my long-term, you know, ultimate joy and reason for living. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> so you wanted to move away from cor corporate America. Yes. Now you're very, very well known for land investing. Was that like your first go at it? Or did you try some fix and flips or some other kinds of asset classes before really specializing and really building up a portfolio in land investing? Yeah, well, uh, it took me actually a few years before I even heard about the idea of land investing. I was trying to do what uh, what most people try to do. Uh, you know, I was looking for houses to flip and houses to buy as rental properties and that kind of thing. And uh, at the time, it was like 2006 or so when I was trying to find these deals and uh, I don't know if you remember much about what the real estate market was like in that time, but oh yeah, <laughs> it was kind of kind of not that dissimilar from today. Like it was just really hard to find deals. Stuff was super expensive, just super competitive, and I, I just spent hundreds of hours just banging my head against the wall. And I I didn't understand how people did this. Like I, everything I looked at, nothing made sense. Like not even close. And um, so I, but part of me knew like, there must be something here because somebody out there is doing it. What am I doing wrong? And uh, basically what I was doing wrong, several things, but the most notable things was I was looking for, you know, the most competitive types of properties that everybody wants. And I was also looking in the most competitive areas, which is just the MLS. Like that's, I thought that was the only place to find deals is 
if you have a for sale sign in the front yard. And uh, that was just a gross misunderstanding. And I finally heard about this idea of going after land and more specifically where and how to get a very specific list of highly motivated sellers and send them direct mail. And, um, and I found that it was, it was extremely easy, comparatively speaking, to find deals on vacant land. And the deals were very, uh, you know, the sellers were highly motivated. They were happy to work with me, willing to take just crazy low offers. They were kind of just apathetic about their property. And um, yeah, it was just a great way to buy a very tangible asset for a very deeply discounted price and not do anything to it. Just literally put it up for sale the next day and sell it for a lot more than I bought it for. And it, it was kind of like this big revelation to me because I never knew this was possible. And in the world of houses, it sort of wasn't possible, at least not the way I was doing it. And uh, so it was a big, a big milestone really in life. And that started this new journey down the land investing track. And uh, it's been a really good business to be involved with for a lot of years. And even as the economy and the market changes, even as the world changes, it remains a very, just kind of a low hanging fruit of the real estate world. It's a type of property that most people overlook or dismiss or don't understand. And as a result, the competition just isn't there. I don't mean to say it's not there at all, but compared to houses, it's just much easier to make super low offers and actually get the deals because there's not a hundred other investors lining up behind you willing to pay more. So, yeah. Nice, 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 nice. Now, Seth, you know, um, I think I might've mentioned or you might've saw that uh, most of my livelihood in real estate has been as an agent. And mm -hmm. as an agent, I wasn't super excited selling land. It just seemed kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, boring, yeah. you know? And so sort of as is. an investor, <laughs> still is, <laughs> but as an investor, it seems very, very intriguing. Now we had somebody else, another guru on the show, and it seemed very, very simple where you take this land, you'll either pay it all cash or get it really dirt cheap, for lack of a, you know, a little pun yeah. there, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And then you carry back the paper into a note and that's it, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's certainly one strategy. I think uh, if you want to go down the seller financing path, that's definitely, um, it's something that works very well with land because with land, uh, for the most part, banks don't want to touch it. Like if you're trying to sell a piece of land to somebody who doesn't have an immediate plan to develop that land or make money from it in some way, they're not going to be able to get a loan for that. And so if you offer seller financing, you're sort of like the only way they're going to be able to buy that thing. And you can charge interest and become the bank. So yeah, I would agree. It's definitely, um, it's an advantageous strategy on the same coin. There's also some complexities with seller financing. Like you have to get the loan documentation right. You have to understand, okay, what if this borrower stops paying me? What then? How do I handle that? And how do I collect payments? And do I need to screen them at all? Or just sort of take anybody who calls me and set up a loan relationship with them? So there's some things you have to, figure out and deal with. It's not just like a plug and play, push this button and money will flow into your bank account. It's not that simple, but, uh, but if you're willing to deal with those challenges, uh, certainly it's a, it's a nice way to sell properties faster and sell them for more and uh, just create some more recurring predictable revenue in a land business. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I'm, I'm a firm believer. Like if it's very easy, a lot more people would be doing it. Yeah. So I think, yeah, there's some complexity there. 
but let's try and keep it simple for the audience and talk some maybe hypothetical numbers. Yeah, yeah this, this big number seems to be going around all the time, uh, $10,000 a month passive. Mm. If somebody wanted to build like a, a business model or a mini business plan starting from scratch and wanted to get there. Now, I understand everybody has their own experience and their own different intelligence around real estate, but a simple business plan, if they wanted to get to 10,000 a month, what would you highly recommend to get to that number as quick as possible? Yeah, well, I mean, there's lots of what ifs buried in that. Um, you know, it depends on how much money you have to start with, first of all, or how much money you have access to. Say if you're partnering with somebody or just using your own cash. Um, also depends on what market you're going to be looking for deals in and what types of properties you want to make offers on. Some some land properties are super cheap. That's actually what I really liked about it in the beginning was I didn't have to have a ton of money to get started. I could you know, buy properties for a few hundred bucks and that was feasible. Um, so if you're just going after that little stuff, those are, it's a lot easier to find those kind of properties. They're all over the place, but it's going to take a lot more gyrations and a lot more doing to get to that kind of income per month. Um, so, uh, but I mean, essentially the formula that a lot of people follow, or at least the one that I follow is when I'm making offers, usually what I'm trying to do is my offer is anywhere from 10 to 30% of that property's market value or what I think it is. And then when I turn around and sell that property, I'll list it anywhere from like 50 to 80% of what I think the property's worth. So the end buyer, no matter what, they're going to be getting a good deal and I'm going to be making some money. And um, really the key to making this work is being able to find people who in the first place are willing to sell their property in that 10 to 30% range. Um, so it sort of just depends on if you're able to find a market and narrow down to the types of properties with you know, enough margins and, and uh, dollar value really per property built in and um, just kind of backing into it. And I'd have to like break out a spreadsheet and put together some scenarios for you. But um, I mean, in terms of, is the question like how many dollars per month do you have to spend to get to that or what you have to do to get to that? Or what specifically is the, well, the question? I'll give you an example to maybe make it a little bit easier. Yeah. So some people get in, <clears throat> excuse me, they get into the single family property investing business, mm -hmm. you know, they hear about this buy and hold. So they do the traditional 5%, 10%, maybe even 20% down. But on a single family, if they do the conventional method, they're cash flowing, maybe 100 to 300 a month, if that, maybe even 500 a month. So 500 divided by 10,000, you know, you need, um, what, 200 properties to get to that mm -hmm. number. Yep. Right. And in land, uh, what would be, I, I, I think that was correct. <laughs> but <laughs> if, if you think about land, what would be the numbers to get to 10,000 a month? Like, um, and you said something about like those smaller properties, if they're buying them, you know, 5,000 to 15,000, you know, and carrying back paper, I mean, there's mm -hmm. only X amount of dollars per month to get to 10,000. What, I don't know if I lost you or lost the audience. Yeah. But, uh, Let me ask you this. It, from what you know, like if you're talking to a house flipper, what would they consider to be a good ROI? Like for all the dollars you put in versus the dollars you get back, like what, what's a good percentage? Eight, eight to 10% cash on cash. It's usually yeah. a decent number. Yeah. So looking at like a land flipper, somebody who just buys land outright and then sells it 
without doing anything, just selling it for cash, no financing involved. Um, I mean, most land flippers that I know, like the bare minimum, they kind of want a hundred percent ROI. So just to give you an idea, like if it's less than that, it's not bad, but like, that's not really what they're shooting for. They kind of want more than that. And like a two to 300% ROI, that would be considered like, yes, we're doing well now. If you get to like four to 500%, that's kind of like home run grand slam territory. And uh, occasionally you'll have these just crazy deals. Like this is not normal at all, but like there was a deal I did this past year where uh, my ROI was 4,900% where I bought a property for 500 bucks and sold it for 25,000. And that's a, that's, you know, that's not normal, but that can happen. And so it, when, when you're sending out direct mail, the idea, I, I don't think most people get into it with such a formulaic approach. Like what, what is the minimum number of actions I need to take to make 10 grand a month? It's not, at least that wasn't my mentality. I was just like, I know this works. If I just take these actions, money will come back at me. If I go through this process again and again, I don't know how much it's going to be. I don't know how long it's going to take, but I know what I have to do. I have a job to do and the result will come if I do it. And uh, for some people that happens like right away, it happens really fast. Maybe they'll get lucky and come across a huge deal like that. For most people though, it's, it's um, that first year is sort of, it's sort of labor intensive just in terms of understanding, okay, how does this work? Just getting my bearings. Can I do this? Like, do, am I doing the direct mail thing right? And after that, it's, it can be almost a little bit monotonous, but the nice thing is like you have a, a sort of a cash generation machine and you know how to make it work. You know what actions to take, you know how to spin the pedals so that it will produce the kind of income you're looking for. At that point, it's just a matter of, how much money and time and effort do you want to keep funneling into this? And some people choose to just go nuts and just, you know, make over a million bucks a year doing that. Other people, it's, it's more of a part-time thing. It's like, I just want extra spending money or I want to be able to buy a rental property faster and my job is going to take forever to get me there. But if I can flip land on the side, that's going to help me create a lot more money. So it's kind of different uh, intents that people have when they do this. Interesting. Okay. So you mentioned costs just a second ago. What would be some of the typical cost aside mailers? Yeah. Well, again, it sort of depends on how, how much you want to spend on these different luxuries, but um, you know, there are different CRM systems people can pay for. Uh, some of the basic stuff that I recommend people do is for example, getting like a dedicated business phone number and a business mailbox so that people aren't sending mail directly to your house. You're not you know, putting your home address out there. Um, I think a website is helpful, not, not critical, but like it's definitely gonna help if you can do that. It's a good way to build your credibility online. When you send mail out to strangers and they're doing their research on you, it's good to have something that they can check out and learn about you and build trust that way. Um, I personally, I set up an LLC right in the beginning when I got started. I don't think you need to, but as a good long-term practice, it's a good idea to have that. Um, it's not crazy expensive to do that in most states, but you know, it's a small cost. And uh, really direct mail is, it's pretty much the biggest cost in the beginning because that's, it's kind of like your lifeline. You really don't have anything going until you get that uh, direct mail sent out there. So. Thank you. Thank you. Now, um, some of the big learning lessons that you had along the way, you know, maybe for the audience, what are some of like the don'ts that you should never do or avoid? 
Um, let's see. Don'ts in terms of uh, like don't spend your time here, or don't spend your money here, or yes, just absolutely. all the above. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, good question. So I think it is pretty easy to get sidetracked in the beginning on things that don't really matter and aren't going to make a big difference, or at least they don't matter until you actually have some deals coming in. For example, like I remember when I got started, I spent a bunch of money. I think I spent 1500 bucks on my first website. And like, I got this fancy letterhead and business cards and stuff. I like, I'm, I'm ashamed of it as I look back. Cause it was just so, it was such a novice mistake. Like it meant nothing. It did nothing for me. I still have my business cards back here. I've never really used, but in my mind though, I just, I had this idea of, okay, this is what a new business ought to do. So I should do it. But I didn't actually logically think through what good is this going to do me? And it didn't do me any good. And, and even the website I, I created it, like it looked beautiful and it like helped build credibility, but it wasn't very functional. Like when somebody got to it, like they're like, okay, now what, like, what do I do other than just read about you? So I think just being really careful about how you spend your money. I didn't have a lot of money to begin with. Like I didn't have a whole lot of money to make mistakes with. And so like what I really should have done is really get my direct mail list nailed down. Cause that's really the most important part of direct mail is sending it to the right people in the first place. And uh, really kind of focusing my effort there until I got that figured out and by the grace of God, I did it, <laughs> but, but it was kind of close and I, it didn't have to be that close. If I had just really been intentional about like, understand what matters, like what are the absolute musts that need to be checked off in order for you to start making money. And until you start making money, don't spend money on other stuff that doesn't matter. That's great. That's great advice. Now you mentioned the mailers. Um, how often should somebody send a mailer and for how long? Like, is it, one mailer a month for the next 12 years until they bite or what is kind of like your, your quick advice on that? Yeah. It's, I don't know that there's like one right answer on this, but um, what a lot of people do is, uh, and I, you know, I'm included in this. I did this exact thing. I kind of like put a bunch of money into getting this mail sent out and figuring out, okay, what do people respond to? You know what, how can I get results and do deals here? And you sort of create this little mini tidal wave of deals coming your way. And then you buy them, you close on them, you list them for sale, you sell them. And all the while, when you're selling these things, there's no more direct mail going out. So there's no more new deals coming out of the door. Kind of just creates this big glut of deals going through your system. And when you sell the things that get your money, you sort of start all over again. You like go all the way back to the direct mail process. And uh, I think that's an understandable thing that a lot of people do in the beginning because they don't really have their bearings yet and they don't know what they don't know. So I don't think that's wrong, but I think um, as soon as possible, try to get some sort of rhythm going where maybe like on the regular, maybe there's a thousand mailers a month going out. So, and that's not like a magic number. I'm just saying like, get some kind of consistency. I know some people who uh, you know, will do 30 mail pieces a day and they have a system that triggers that to happen on autopilot. Um, so, but the, you know, the idea being sort of try to level it out when you can. And, you know, once you get some automations in place, maybe you get a virtual assistant to help you out with some of this stuff uh, that becomes more and more achievable, but um, it's kind of hard to do that right at the very beginning. Nice. Thank you. 
Now, you mentioned a tremendous win, the 4,900% return. That was awesome. Yeah. What are some of the like common challenges um, that you've seen with the land investors? What, what would be some of the common problems you've seen or learning lessons you've had? Yeah, I think uh, a big hurdle that a lot of people have a hard time getting over, especially right in the beginning, is this direct mail thing. Like, even I get this sometimes today when I'm about to pull the trigger on a direct mail campaign and spend, you know, a couple thousand bucks sending out mail. You don't really know what's going to come back from that. There's no guarantee. I mean, it's not likely, but possible that nothing will come back from that. And that's a big kick in the gut, especially in the beginning when you don't have a whole lot of money, at least I didn't, um, to go through that and be like, oh man, like, how do you, how do you go back to the drawing board and do that all over again? Still not knowing what's going to work. Um, and I, I, uh, I think usually the cause of that, um, like, again, like I mentioned earlier, the most important thing is the list, like sending it to the right people. But also if you're sending out offers to people on that first mail campaign, a lot of people refer to that as blind offers. Um, it's important to like, kind of spend a lot of time trying to formulate the most appropriate offer. And that's, it's actually worth, worth obsessing to that to some degree, because that, that is your only hope really with a blind offer. I mean, that's, if people turn that down, it doesn't mean you could never do a deal with them, but like that is your first impression and it will be the last impression for a lot of people. So try to get that nailed down. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it also helps. I think um, something that I used a lot in the beginning was the delinquent tax list from the County. And this is a list that, Every county in America has, it's just a question of whether or not you can get it, but it's a list of all the property owners in that county that uh, they have not lost their property yet to tax foreclosure, but they're going too soon because they're back doing their property taxes. And uh, this kind of list is usually a huge pain to get, and it's a huge pain to sort through, takes lots of time. And I, I did spend many, many hours dealing with this on my first several campaigns, but like my response rate was awesome. And like, I pretty much always got deals because I was willing to obsess over this list in the, in the first place. So uh, if you're somebody like me, who I didn't have a lot of money and I, I needed it to work pretty quickly, um, it's probably, it's honestly probably worth that just to make sure like, uh, also just like psychologically, the power of an early win is a big deal as opposed to a power, the power of an early loss, you know, sending out a bunch of mail and nothing happens. That's really hard to get over that. Um, so, so really like at all costs, like do what you have to do to get some kind of response or some kind of feedback that it's working um, as soon as possible. Even if that means spending lots of time and frustration to do it because it's worth it to have that early win. Nice. Nice. Now, I totally agree with you that, uh, yeah, you want to build up that confidence because, I mean, if you don't have that early win, I mean, chances are you're going to quit. And then there goes that opportunity when if you stuck with it like yourself, now it's like your future, you know? Yeah, yeah <laughs> so for sure. Cool. That's cool. Now, um, somebody looking at different marketplaces, how far would you recommend that they go? Should they stay local or should they go ahead and go out of state? Um way far away from where they actually live. Yeah. I mean, I, I spent my first few years working in the state where I lived and they were, I mean, in hindsight, there's really no reason I needed to do that. It was kind of just for whatever reason I thought I needed to do that. Like that's, I needed to be able to drive and visit the property if I needed to and that kind of thing. 
And uh, I will say there, there is some benefit in being able to do that because a lot of times, I don't know, you'll just get insights when you see it on site that you won't have otherwise. However, <laughs> I would not necessarily pick markets just based on that. I think um, Michigan, where, where I live, that was where I spent my first few years doing deals really. Michigan is one of those states where like, it's not terrible, but it's not great either. It's kind of just like an eh, in-between place to do deals. And uh, if I had started in a state where properties sell faster and people want to be there more and that kind of thing, um, I probably could have gotten a lot further, a lot faster. So uh, I would not, I would not say that you have to start where you live uh, or even think that's that important of a piece of the equation. Cause it's not, it's more a question of, have you researched that market? Is it a place where people want to go? Are the, uh, you know, are the laws favorable for land? Is it hard to foreclose on a property or is it easy to foreclose on a property? If you go down the seller financing route, um, it's lots of things to look at, which I, I've talked about at great length at uh, retipster.com, but there's uh, lots of things to consider and just staying in the place where you live, I don't think is that important of a consideration, honestly. What? Thank you. What's some of the other tips? Like in San Diego, we've got very, very well-developed, uh, expensive land, but it's still available. Mm-hmm. But if I go further out on my way to like Barstow on the way to Vegas, there's a lot of undeveloped land and it's a lot cheaper. Um, what are your thoughts with a state like mine where you got a good variety, where there's, there's very, very developed land, but it's very, very expensive, but you go further out, like some of the other states as well, then it's just a lot, a lot of dirt, but no development, but the land is cheap. Is there some other formulas to look out for to invest in land? Yeah, honestly, like um, I've not worked in like San Diego County myself, but I, I know a lot of people who have and worked in counties around there and like, they all do pretty well, honestly. The Southern California, I think it's um, like taxes and that kind of thing are expensive and all that, but there's just a, a high demand. There's lots of people who want to live there and want to buy property there. It has this intrinsic value that people are attracted to. Whereas if you look at a place like, you know, the middle of Iowa or something like that, it's just, I don't know. If you're into farmland specifically, maybe that makes sense. But um, for like flipping cheap residential lots and that kind of thing. Iowa is not a place that millions of people gravitate to as their first, you know, (laughs) but California is um, as is places like Florida and Arizona and Texas and that kind of thing. So um, yeah. And one way you can do this, by the way, is if you're able to get on a website like Zillow, for example, um, you know, you can pretty easily filter you know, go to a county or a zip code and filter it by the vacant land properties based on certain sizes and that kind of thing. And you can see like on average, how long have these properties been on the market? And, you know, how many people have viewed this property listing? How many people have saved this property listing? And just, it, it takes some time to go through this stuff and just get a feel for what kind of activity is going on. But I can tell you, you'll notice some huge differences between different markets. There are some places where the average property listing has been looked at maybe seven times in the past month and other places where the average vacant land listing has been looked at over a thousand times in the past month. That These are all clues that like, okay, people care about land here for one reason or another. Lots of people are looking there. These are all clues that uh, maybe it'll be easier to sell. And that's actually one of the, the big bottlenecks with most land investors is the selling process. 
Um, it's usually a lot easier to find deals, a lot, I don't want to say harder to sell, but just slower to sell. And if you're working in certain markets, they just naturally sell faster. Like you don't have to work so hard to sell the stuff because people want it, you know? Nice. Thank you. Now yeah. you mentioned something interesting there. Um, selling it is a little bit harder than acquiring. Mm-hmm. How about like, you know, earlier about taking a property back? I mean, what's, what's the hardest part of this business basically? Yeah, good question. Um, it can probably be a few different things depending on where a person is at in their own learning of the business. I think initially that direct mail thing, just going out on a limb and having the courage to do it and figuring it out, that's a big hurdle to get over. Um, and then depending on the market, selling is in many, many situations, it just, it's kind of frustrating. Like Michigan, for example, um, I, I found this so many times where I would buy a property and like, it's not that it wouldn't sell. It always sold and I always made money on it, but like it just, it's, you have to sit on it for a while. Like you got to just keep posting ads everywhere and keep pushing it and pushing it. And eventually that buyer accounts, but it just takes time. And that's a, that can be a very frustrating thing when you, you want to see the velocity of money going faster. Cause that's how you keep making more money is doing more deals, but you're just stuck. You got to wait till the thing sells. Um, so what was your original question? Sorry, if I just... No, that's <laughs> it. That's it, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with everybody, it's a little bit different with their skill set. Yeah. And I could see how that could be a challenge where, you know, you buy property, whether it's a thousand or a hundred thousand, and then you want to turn it around and make that juicy profit, but you yeah. can't move that money until that property sells. So you're constantly yeah. trying to move that money to yeah. get your, your ROI. And yeah, so I could it, see... And that sort of depends on like which market you chose and like, what is your end game with this? Like I know some people buy vacant lots with the intent of subdividing them and reselling them for more. That's not something I have spent much time doing, but like, if that's your play, it's sort of a different process and a different end result. So it kind of depends on uh, a few of those things, but Maybe that's giving you some ideas anyway on some of the challenges. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. No, I had a friend that used to develop land as well. And he would just take raw land, go down to the city and title it and then Mm -hmm. sell them off as individual parcels. And that's a heck of a strategy, you know, where where I I agree that could be one of the profit plays for sure. What are what are your typical profit plays? Is it that simple formula where you just buy the land and then flip it? or you're doing other things with the land um, that you like doing? Yeah. I mean, for me, it doesn't really matter like what the features of the land are per se, or whether I even think it's that great of a property. It's more of a, what evidence can I find in the market of what this thing is worth and how, how long it'll take to sell. I basically just want to know that it's worth a lot more than I want to pay for it. And it will sell relatively soon. And that's kind of the main thing I need to know. And that there's no like crucial problems with the property. Like it's not buildable or, you know, some, some other land can have some kind of weird oddities to it sometimes. Like if it's affected by wetlands or a flood zone, um, doesn't necessarily mean it's not buildable, but it's a problem that's going to be, make it harder to sell or make it sell for less. So kind of looking for that stuff. But uh, I, I used to do seller fa- financing a lot more back in the day, but Um, it's kind of just like a strategic move. I just kind of got tired of the complexities of it. 
and dealing with people who just decided to just stop paying me one day. And um, it's not that there's not ways to get around that because there are, there's certainly ways to deal with all those problems, but I just didn't want to do it. I sort of wanted to know I'm getting all my money right now. We're done. I can move on. So I try to sell all my properties for cash. Um, sometimes I'll offer seller financing as an option. Um, but when I do, it's, it's almost more of a psychological pricing strategy. Like seller financing is available on this as well, but the price is way higher. It's going to be a lot more expensive for that. And then they see the cash price by comparison and it becomes obvious to them. I'll just pay cash or I'll find financing somehow from someplace else, whether it's a bank loan or a HELOC and do it that way. So yeah, so usually it's, I'm kind of like the get in, get out. I don't try not to mess with seller financing too much. And um, again, that doesn't mean it's not, not a good thing. It's just what I've chosen to try to avoid when I can. Got it. Got it. That's awesome, Seth. You shared so much here. Really, really appreciate it. Any last tips for the audience? Best way to get a hold of you? Anything like that? Yeah, I would say, I mean, really, I've been chronicling a lot of this stuff for years, like since 2012 um, over at retipster.com. So if you guys want to, we have a whole section of the blog dedicated specifically to land with a lot of um, very, very detailed blog posts and videos that I've spent thousands of hours on. So if anybody wants to learn more about that, I'd invite you to go check out retipster.com. Cool. Thank you so much, Seth. This has been a pleasure and uh, happy holidays. Thanks. You too. Thanks again for having me on. Wow. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I hope you learned as much as I did or more. So guys, look at the comment thread. If you've seen something or heard something, want to learn more about something, please put it on the comment link below. If you're not a subscriber yet, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. Go ahead and smash that bell to hear the latest and greatest on the show. Follow me on Facebook. Follow me on Instagram. I'm putting this channel together to hopefully add incredible value to you. And if you want to learn more about investing, you're new to investing, I highly recommend this book, Flex with a Plex. Also, this book, if you're having some challenges, as you can see, everybody on the show had some kind of adversity, including yours truly. So I shared a lot of that on Make It a Comeback, giving you some incredible tips to make a comeback. So get either one, Flex with a Plex, or Make It a Comeback. If you want to get more tips, go ahead and go to JoeMendoza.com. Again, subscribe, share, like. Make a comment below. I really, really appreciate you. Want to add incredible value and wish you all the best in your success in real estate and in life. Take care. Our company is not responsible for the success or failure of your business decisions relating to any information presented by our company or our company programs, products, and or services.